From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's Triple Z. Hi, I'm Kim, your host for this 18th edition of Radio in Colour. On September the 11th, 2001, two planes flew into the World Trade Center buildings in New York and one into the Pentagon in Washington in the USA, killing almost 3,000 people and injuring 6,000 others. The Western world was transfixed with repetitive news coverage. The media portrayed the event as an act of war against America. Today we look at how the events of that day were received in cultures other than our own and how the world has changed since that day. We also look at two other major threats to human life on this planet, nuclear technology and climate change, and in our responses to them, how 4ZZZ reported them and the difference between what the people want and what our governments want. So stay tuned. This crusade will rid the world of the evildoers. Evil is real. They are evil. If this is not evil, then evil has no meaning. Can you ever win the war on terror? I say bomb the hell out of them. If there's collateral damage, so be it. Can we win it? Do you see that? I don't, I don't think you can win it. We reach it. But make no mistake about it. We are winning and we will win. Soon after the two jumbo jets smashed into Lower Manhattan, bringing the World Trade Center down in a blaze, videotapes went on sale in China showing the horrific highlights spliced together with scenes from Hollywood disaster movies. It was as though the real thing, two skyscrapers collapsing on thousands of people, was not dramatic enough. And only fantasy could capture the true flavor of such catastrophes. The deliberate conflation of reality and fantasy left an impression that the victims were not real human beings but actors, and most were kept invisible anyway by the uncharacteristic modesty of the television networks, which refused to show suffering in close-up. For at least a few seconds, unreality was the impression most people got when they switched on their television sets. It was 8.46 in the morning. And then we heard a plane come over, and in Manhattan, you don't hear planes too often, especially loud ones. And this is a difficult moment for America. Uh, today we've had a national tragedy. Uh, two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. But some governments will be timid in the face of terror. In the face of terror. In the face of terror. And make no mistake about it, if they do not act, America will. For many, not only in China, the idea that this was some kind of movie, a purely imaginary event, an act of theatre, also made it easier to feel something more sinister. Once the war against Saddam begins, we expect every American to support our military, and if they can't do that, to shut up. War. war. We are winning the war. The destruction of the Twin Towers, symbols of US power and wealth, symbols of imperial global capitalist dominance, symbols of New York City, our contemporary Babylon, symbols of everything American that people both hate and long for, the destruction of all that in less than two hours gave some people, not only in China, a feeling of deep satisfaction. In this restricted sense, the fall of the Twin Towers was a success for it was part of Osama bin Laden's war on the West, both physical and metaphysical. It was at once a real and a symbolic attack 
on New York, on America, and on an idea of America and the West it represents. In many places, the reaction to the American disaster was in any case more than schadenfreude over the misfortunes of a great and sometimes overbearing power and went deeper than mere dissatisfaction with US foreign policy. A deliberate act of murder played into an ancient myth, the myth about the destruction of the ancient city of Babylon. World reactions to 9-11 were the subject of a popular thread on Reddit in 2014. I'm Throwaway, a US-born Palestinian. I was 11. Pretty much everyone in the village was happy about it. My dad was filled with smiles. People were giving out candy to each other in the city. It was a topic of discussion for a few months. I'm sorry, but at the time I was happy about it too. Everyone viewed it as a defeat to the US and indirectly a defeat to Israel. America has been indiscriminately aiding Israel with weapons and grenades that I witnessed with my own eyes injuring friends and family. Why would people not be happy about it? I grew up, views changed. It was a tragic event and I'm sorry that I celebrated the death of innocence. I grew up in Istanbul, Turkey. Though I was 10 at the time, I remember watching the chaos at Ground Zero on TV. I remember a lot of footage of search and rescue looking for survivors in the rubble. I think it was the thought of being stuck under rubble that scared me. There was speculation that the US would start a war with Afghanistan. For the next two weeks, all news channels talked about 911, Bush, Taliban and Al-Qaeda, 100% of the time. The coverage universally condemned Al-Qaeda and offered sympathy for the loved ones of the victims. I remember at least one interview on TV in the following days with a Turkish Muslim cleric who was condemning Al-Qaeda saying that what they did had no place in Islam. I recall feeling some sort of shame inside, like I was guilty by association. These people who shared my religion had done something horrible. When I went to school the next day, our teacher took some time to talk about how deplorable Al-Qaeda was. Someone asked if the US was going to invade Turkey and our teacher assured us that we were safe, even if the US invaded Afghanistan and that the US would never invade Turkey. I'm Kimua 1907 I am a Turkish Muslim guy from Germany, and I was in middle school at the time. I remember coming home from school and seeing my parents sitting in front of the TV. They did not even notice that I came home from school, and I knew from their face expressions that something terrible had happened. My mum was crying when the media showed footage of people jumping from the Twin Towers. After we knew that there was a terror act by radical Islamists, my dad said that also life for us Muslims would never be the same as before. He, he sat down and explained to us the difference between us Muslims and what radicalism is and that terrorists who did that harm to our religion. After that day, every time something shows up in the media about terrorist attacks or tragedy, my parents hoped that it wasn't done by some douchebag terrorists who claim they are Muslim. I'm Nati Get One. Well, I'm Ethiopian and unfortunately, this terrible act of terror had to happen on a day all Ethiopians celebrate New Year's. I was 13 at the time, and I remember I was with my family and friends celebrating the holiday. Suddenly, there was breaking news on TV. The night simply changed from celebration to sadness with a sense of absolute disbelief. As the event was unfolding, and as the World Trade Center started to fall, I could only remember my mother just shouting the words, Why? Why? while her eyes welled with tears. That was just dreadful day that it will never be forgotten by Ethiopians. As we celebrate New Year's Day, we will always remember the sorrow the US felt on that day. Supported by Britain and other allies, the USA declared a war on terror, invading Afghanistan in 2001 and Iraq in 2003. Operation Enduring Freedom, 
developed into two enduring wars. The British government abandoned the use of the phrase War on Terror in 2007, and in 2009 the USA officially changed the name of its military operations from Global War on Terror to Overseas Contingency Operation. The US officially withdrew from Iraq in December 2011, but returned to intervene in 2014 after the Iraqi insurgency escalated into civil war. A 2006 Lancet Journal survey of deaths related to the invasion and occupation of Iraq estimated total excess deaths to be around 655,000. The US and Britain formally ended their combat operations in Afghanistan in October 2014, but after another year of the continuing Taliban insurgency, in 2015 the US announced it would maintain a combat presence indefinitely. 4ZZZ and 4EB radio technician Gavin Unsworth spent five years in Afghanistan from 2003 helping with the reconstruction. Radio played an important part in the process. When I first went to Kabul, it was complete destruction. You know, buildings that had been bombed that were, that were still collapsed. Um, nothing had been done to them other than looting, getting stuff out. But the, the whole place was in disarray. There was no electricity, there was there's no, no city water, um, nothing, nothing was functioning in any sense of the word. When I went back in 2005, so there was a period of about 12 to, 12 to 18 months between the first visit and when I, when I was there more permanently. And in that period, the construction had started. And basically that construction continued for most of the time that I was there. I guess the face of Kabul changed completely. There's a, a, a large percentage of buildings there are, are newly constructed in, in the last 10 years. Maybe some of this stuff is a stuff that's, that's sort of surrealistic. So even though the whole, the whole city can be without electricity, when you're there as part of a, a team uh, working for an international NGO, you've got a, a compound security, generators, fuel supply, air conditioning, satellite internet, all of the basic infrastructure needs are, are there. And a, a large part of what I ended up doing during the time that I was in, in Afghanistan was building that infrastructure. You know, my background is engineering and a lot of these projects were run by ad administrators, um, people with economics backgrounds, finance, agriculture, uh, journalists. There, there weren't many engineers around. We established a whole radio network in the south. We built nine towers in nine cities and satellite distribution. We built studios. We built a whole a whole radio infrastructure from the ground up. That was uh, extremely interesting from a technical perspective. But the work with Internews, it was more satisfying because um, like, even back in, in East Timor, we were working with small communities, helping them to establish an, an equivalent to a community radio station here where they owned and operated it. You know, our, our involvement was to assist with a training, training, you know, management training, journalism training, finance training, technical training, establishing the, the infrastructure and getting them on air and broadcasting. And a lot of these stations are really small, only broadcast for a few hours a day. It wasn't, wasn't like community radio here 24-7 and city electricity. This was like go, go outside, crank up the generator, turn the radio station on and start broadcasting to an area where there is no other radio station. The content varied a lot and the content was um, often driven by other donor campaigns. For instance, water and sanitation is huge in, in development. Obviously, um, it has a lot of health impacts. So um, educating people on what seem like simple things, water sanitation, washing your hands, um, you know, uh, digging toilet pits far enough away from where you're sourcing your water if it's a well, all that kind of information, uh, other health-related information, um, stuff on domestic violence. I mean, it's very not that different to the sort of community announcement campaigns that, that occur here in Australia. 
But I think the, the big thing about radio is that there's not a high amount of education. People, that they can converse. They might not be able to read, but they can... Radio is, is the way to get information from a point source to a community. And when you're the only broadcaster in town, it's amazing. Suddenly, everybody's got a radio and they know exactly when to tune in. They know who's on air. They know everything that's going on. Well, one of the really cute things about the, the radio stations was... Um, the feedback mechanism so here you, you know we, we've got telephones and, and whatnot um t- the telephone network came later so in afghanistan um one of the commercially driven projects was to was to build out um, mobile phone infrastructure but at the end of the day relatively a mobile phone is expensive and to use it is expensive so the radio stations would often use a dropbox a feedback mechanism so somewhere in in the center of the village or in in the town and remember these, these stations are broadcast to quite a large area so people would would travel from a remote village they would come into a larger center and leave letters in in the dropbox and i've actually got a few examples at home written in diary and you know that um, persian is is the poet's language and just the the sound of the language is so so beautiful and poetry written in that i mean even if you don't understand it it's 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 really uplifting to to listen to and the written script is is the same i mean it's 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 beautiful and it can be it can be made into a piece of art and you, you've seen it you, you've seen um you know sections of, of the quran printed and it looks like a work of art um and these letters would look like a work of art and they would have roses and and thorns and it would it would link up with the text and the funny thing was that when they translated probably 80 percent of them were from girls sending a message to a boy that they liked but without ever mentioning who they were or who he was and these would be read out on air. (laughs) Terrorism has changed the world and Australia is not immune. But the way of life that we value so highly must go on. (laughs) Australians are friendly, friendly, beloved, decent, friendly, democratic, decent, friendly, beloved, suspicious people. And we're going to stay that way. Our security agencies have been suspicious and will be providing you with terrorism. All of us can play a part by keeping an eye out for any friendly, decent, democratic people. Over the coming weeks, the Commonwealth Government will be providing you with suspicious information on how we can work together to be alarmed, suspicious people. And we're going to stay that way. Terrorism is our way of life. Terrorism is our way of life. If you see something suspicious, the Commonwealth Government will be providing you with terrorism. It's after curfew, so make sure that no one heard you. Just the suggestion of free expression could hurt you. Untamed aggression on the faces of the faithful. El Patron is merciful, eternally grateful. Coming out the pep rally down at the stadium. Where they say the secret jail is just put the cages in. Tear gas and horses, disperse the demonstration. Turn the native army on the native population. Official TV station has taken a different view. They say they're banning gatherings of any more than two. Cause the president lives in mortal fear of a coup d'etat. He's raised his own militia. It's autumn of the patriarch. In the wake of the 9-11 attack, most Western countries cracked down on civil liberties, including legitimate dissent. In 2005, the actions of Scott Parkin, a Texan peace activist visiting Australia, became the subject of a test case for Australia's new anti-terrorism act. Um, I was talking about uh, Halliburton and our campaign against war profiteering uh, that we've been carrying out in Houston. Um, and I went around Australia and talked about that quite a bit. And then I was also uh, kind of merging that with a discussion about the U.S. anti-war movement and strategies that we're using to kind of like put pressure on certain pillars of power that support the illegal war and occupation of Iraq and ways to like kind of shut that down in a nonviolent way. Your hometown of Houston is Halliburton's HQ, isn't it? Yeah, Halliburton is, uh, they do a couple of things in Iraq. First of all, they're... Uh, they're like kind of like a oil services support uh, company. They provide a lot of uh, the maintenance and construction of oil pipelines, that sort of thing in Iraq. They also own a company called Kellogg Brown and Root, which is based all over Australia as well as 
here in the United States. And they provide a lot of logistical support for U.S. troops in Iraq. Um, and then they also do a lot of construction of things like military bases and such. When the immigration department deported me, they didn't they didn't give me a uh, a real reason of why they were like removing me from the country. Um, and instead, we hear leaks from ASIO to sympathetic media. You know, Philip Ruddock and John Howard come out and make make you know statements, but there's never been any kind of like um, official process to really kind of let me know what was in their assessment and why I was considered a national security risk and why I had to be removed. It must be profoundly so, insulting to you to, to be told that you're a security risk. It is. It's very frustrating. And, and, and I honestly think I'm pretty much the opposite. And I, I wonder why the Australian government spends the taxpayers' money in you know, like snatching peace activists off the street, yet those people like Osama bin Laden are still walking around. We're trying to get the uh, my, my cancelled visa kind of um, uh, reviewed by the Migration Review Tribunal. And I think some other stuff might be coming up. They said I can't even apply to come back for three years. And... And they gave me this $11,000 bill saying that um, uh, you have to pay that before you return to Australia as well. Actually, there's something I do want to say, cause, cause, and I get this asked this question a lot, but I just want people to understand that I really liked Australia. I loved Australia. I thought you have a beautiful country, and all the people I love were warm and friendly. I was invited into so many people's homes to stay as I traveled through, and this hasn't jaded my my uh, my view of Australia at all. But I, I don't necessarily care for the government too much and, and what they did to me. But as far as the Australian people go, I, I love them, and I love, you know, just traveling to your beautiful country. In the very least, I hope that what the ordeal that's happened to me really kind of, you know, encourages more people to say, hey, I've had enough, and it's time to start doing something than just, like, complaining about it after watching the news every night. I think it has. I mean, you've seen that there's been a lot of people out in the street in your defense and in the defense of civil rights in Australia as it is, and that's um, been really heartening for us in the peace movement. So thanks for doing that for us, Scott, even if you didn't mean to. No worries, Cam. We're really, really uh, sorry for what happened to you and, and what the Australian government did to you. On behalf of myself and the majority of Australians, we all disagreed with the government's actions and it was really bad. We're really sorry. No, uh, it's okay. Well, not okay, but I appreciate y'all saying that. And uh, hammering away. It doesn't take your voices long to catch on. This is anything but romance. This is terrible too. Me with absolutely nothing to lose. Only one of us is seeking the truth. You want to know the truth. Many Australians probably assumed that the 2005 law was a short-term reaction to the events of September 11 and other attacks overseas. However, in the wake of the crackdown on dissent, a raft of other legislation became politically possible, including Queensland's anti-bikey laws and increases in police and ASIO powers. Heard with Freedom Samba. You're listening to Radio and Colour. We now turn to the two major environmental challenges to the Earth that have escalated in the last 40 years nuclear risks and climate change. Say whether, whether President Clinton would be delighted or not. 
Despite having only one nuclear reactor, Australia exports the majority of the world's uranium. The 1986 Chernobyl meltdown in the Ukraine had heightened international awareness of the risks of nuclear technology. While in the 1980s, the Joe Bjorki-Peterson government challenged the federal government legislation to limit uranium mining to just three mines, world opinion was against him. Successful protests by unionists and greenies saw Queensland's Mary Kathleen uranium mine shut down in 1982. In the late 80s and early 90s, France began a round of nuclear bomb testing in their Pacific colony of the Marshall Islands, where the entire population had already been forcibly removed in the 1960s. The testing and possible fallout in Australia brought the issue closer to home. 4 Z reports from 1989. Can you tell us why you're protesting against French nuclear explosions in the Pacific? Well, if anybody is causing danger to our lifestyle, then the French are at the moment. If they withdraw from testing in the Pacific, then it's going to be a safer, healthier place for us to live in. Thanks. Well, we're protesting because it's Bastille Day and the French are still testing nuclear weapons in the Pacific. and. We think that there's no reason to celebrate, especially for the people of Polynesia and Kanaki. So I'm personally here because I'm just totally disgusted with the French government. I think it's about time that they faced up to the fact that nuclear weapons are really bad and they shouldn't be testing them. And they faced up to their responsibilities to the people of the Pacific. And a lot of Australians don't realise that there's hundreds and hundreds of people in Tahiti and French Polynesia that are giving birth to deformed babies, that they've got cancers, and it's just being hushed up. The French government sending them back to France for specialist treatment and not allowing them to tell the media what's going on. And Milro Atoll is leaking, it's leaking radiation out. And if you look at the effect that the protests have had all over the world against land-based nuclear weapons, I think that was one of the things that brought Gorbachev to the table and started him speaking about pulling out all the cruise missiles. And I think it will eventually have some effect. Where, but the French government is very, very thick-skinned and there have been lots and lots of protests against them. I think probably all the other nations are probably going to give up testing nuclear weapons before the French do. Do you think enough is being done by politicians here in Australia to confront these issues? Definitely not, not by the Labor Party because it's this gross hypocrisy to sell uranium to the French and then complain at international forums and the South Pacific Forum about nuclear tests. They've got to stop selling the uranium to them. Well, we're protesting against the French testing in the, in the Pacific, which is not only polluting our atmosphere and, and all the and fallout and so forth like that, but it also, we're, we protest against all nuclear testing. We don't want nuclear bombs of any description in the world. The French just happen to be in our own backyard and, and it was so f safe to test over there. Why don't they do it open in uh, France? Australia was no stranger to nuclear testing. In the 1950s, the British tested their nuclear weapons in outback South Australia at Maralinga and in the Montebello Islands of Western Australia. 1,892 Australian military personnel were exposed to radiation. The British also dumped their radioactive ships in oceans near the islands. In 1984, a Royal Commission into the nuclear testing was commenced. The Royal Commission was told by a former RAAF pilot, a Mr. Bobble, that he flew an aircraft into a huge radioactive cloud that covered Lake Eyre. Mr. Bobble claims that the radioactive testing material on the plane did not work, but when canisters were taken from the plane on the ground and tested by scientists, the Geiger counters went berserk. Mr. Bobble flew into radioactive clouds over Monte Bello and Lake Eyre in Central Australia. His plane crews duty was to assess the level of radioactivity in clouds over former atom bomb test sites. However, he claims the equipment on board the planes did not work. 
He said the cloud that covered Lake Eyre was 50 by 30 nautical miles in area and probably several thousand metres deep. Mr Bobble claims one of the aircraft used in the testing flights was, an, was a British RAF Canberra bomber which was subsequently flown to Amberley Air Base in Queensland where it was left behind a hangar. The, air, the aircraft was completely contaminated with radioactivity. Mr Bobble says that one of the crew members on his flights had since died of cancer and another crew member, a Mr Turner of Melbourne, was now suffering from cancer. He said they were not provided with any protective clothing during the flights. After they, after they landed, they would shower and sometimes put the same uniforms back on. He said they were never examined by any RAAF doctors. Another witness who appeared before the Commission was a Mr Edwards, who, as a member of the Air Force, had the duty of cleaning down contaminated equipment near the Maralinga test site. Mr Edwards said they were not provided with any protective face masks or gloves by the Air Force. He claims that while spraying down contaminated equipment such as Land Rovers, he would often get radioactive mud sprayed onto his body, and that included being sprayed onto his face. The residual water from these equipment cleaning exercises flew into a small pond which wild animals such as kangaroos, rabbits and birds would come and drink from. Mr Edwards said the reasonably large pond was like a radioactive sump. The water seeped away, and he believed probably into the desert soil or possibly even into the artesian basin. Mr Edwards said all those who were involved in cleaning down radioactive equipment were given a three-day crash course in 1957 in the dangers of radioactivity. This was called Atomic Biological and Chemical Storage and basically consisted of an Australian colonel telling the Australian staff that they would be alright because the pommies involved were going to get twice the dose of radioactivity that the Australians would receive. Mr Edwards said he suffered from severe skin disorders and had been in the RAAF up until 1975 but had never had a specific medical check on the amount of radioactivity his body contained. In 2001, the British government admitted that they had used Australian troops as guinea pigs for radiation experiments. The Australian Nuclear Veterans Association began a 20-year battle to be recognised and get the medical aid they needed. However, Compensation wasn't granted until 2011, after most of them had already died from cancers. On March 11, 2011, there happened a nuclear disaster of such proportions that it stopped most nuclear development worldwide in its tracks. The meltdown of the fourth reactor at Fukushima Daiichi and explosions in the other three reactors occurred as a result of a massive tsunami that devastated the town of Sendai and Miyagi and Fukushima prefectures in northern Japan. Over 19,000 people died and 100,000 people were evacuated. Fukushima prefecture remains uninhabitable. Dairy farmer Hisigawa Kinichi was invited to Australia by Friends of the Earth. He spoke in Brisbane in 2013. The interpreter is Julie Siegel. Thank you very much. I'm from Fukushima and I am from the area where this accident happened. We've been forced to um, move far away from our hometown. Our families have been separated. I'm a dairy farmer. We had to leave our cows behind and uh, deal with the cattle. Uh, we, we don't have anything. We're living a very disruptive life. And the closest part of Itake village uh, to the nuclear power plant is only about 30 kilometers away. After the accident, we heard that plutonium and strontium was uh, dis detected in the soil where we were living. Even two years later, throughout Fukushima, the, um, the grass that the, the fields that the cattle would graze on is still uninhabitable. But then, two, just two years ago, the earthquake occurred, as you know, and the explosion happened at the nuclear power plant. 
Then after the third uh, reactor explosion happened, the national government ordered people to uh, move away from that area uh, just as a precaution against radiation. But we in Itate village thought, I've got to come here, we're fine. Uh, but the fact is, it already had. We were in a very safe zone, so those, those figures, those words meant nothing to me. I discussed with the leaders at the emergency headquarters uh, about what was happening, and they, they mentioned this micro, 40 micro seatbelts figure. I don't know if it was high, low, what it really meant, but um, I was made aware that there was a, a radiation problem, and I was going to leave the campaign headquarters, and um, I was told, listen, we've told you this, this figure of 40, but don't tell anyone else. This is just our private information. We've been ordered to not um, release that information. And all I can imagine is that it was a, a kind of um, public control measure, uh, so it wouldn't cause panic in the community. you can't smell it, you can't feel it, everything seems to be alright, so no one wanted to leave. Then the very next day the um, government, national government released information about the amount of radiation in the water in Itade village. Uh, so around a thousand becquerels was the uh, radiation uh, level, so we were given bottles of water. イダテ村の人たちはこの水を飲んでそしてこの水でご飯を炊いて食べてお風呂に入っていたんですでもちろんでもちろんでもちろんでもちろんでもちろんでもちろんでもちろんでもちろんでもちろんでもちろんでもち
She was running after the uh, truck crying. She was apologizing. Sorry. It wasn't only the women crying. This is another dairy farmer who had worked hard and finally found a place in um, Itate village that he could start a dairy farm. It took him 10 years. He worked tirelessly and yet he was faced with the same situation. He was standing there crying too. Then the thing I most feared happened. A friend of mine, a, a fellow dairy farmer, took his own life as a result of this. And on the wall of his um, farm, he wrote, uh, if only there were no nuclear power plants. He also wrote these words as well. He said, thank you to his older sister. Thank you, sister, for all you've done for me. And over on the right, it says, my fellow dairy farmers, don't lose out to the nuclear power plant. He left behind a seven-year-old son and a five-year-old son. This is quite a shocking picture I'm about to show you. These are dairy cattle from a fellow dairy farmer's uh, barn. They've, they've died of starvation. I hope, I hope that this picture can be burned into your brains. This is what happened after that um, nuclear power plant accident. This is what happened to our cattle. But now the government is uh, putting a lot of effort into decontaminating this area. They want it to go back. But they actually haven't got a good method or plan. They don't know what's the best method to decontaminate, the most thorough way of decontaminating. We may not be able to go back. In the wake of the disaster, Germany, Switzerland, Spain and Austria halted their nuclear power programs, while others, such as Sweden, Italy and Belgium, reaffirmed their commitment to nuclear phase-out begun after the 1986 Chernobyl disaster. The value of uranium ore plummeted. Japan shut down all its 77 reactors after the disaster in 2011, restarting some amidst mass protests in 2015. The Fukushima Daiichi reactor continued to leak radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean in 2015. In the 2000s, the Australian federal government began searching for a site to store its nuclear waste, with the possibility of importing nuclear waste from overseas. Since the 1950s, governments and the military have been seeking a safe way to store the waste without success. They have also tried a number of non-military ways of using it, such as aeroplane ballast and for the nuclear irradiation of food. A food irradiation plant was proposed for the Narang Bar north of Brisbane in the early 2000s that catalyzed a year-long protest camp. Triple Z was there. Police have indicated before that they want to get trucks through either of these front gates. Ain't no power like the power of the people and the power of the people won't stop. Ain't no power like the power of the people and the power of the people won't stop. Both directions move itself across the roadway away from this the gates. We abide with that direction. Brisbane is 
bigger than Steritech. Brisbane is bigger than Steritech. I have not made my point sufficiently strong yet. You are still here. No. I realise I am under arrest. I am not moving until I am possible. In 2001, the Federal Minister for the Environment, Robert Hill, uh, he's the minister who gave the go-ahead to the Jabaluka mine up in the Northern Territory and the honeymoon in situ leachy uranium mine in South Australia. He decided to grant permission for the uh, Stereotech's third nuclear radiation plant in Australia. And last year the BD state government uh, sold the land, which, was, uh, which has now uh, been, I guess, rezoned to become part of the Narangba Industrial Estate uh, to accommodate Stereotech. I can tell you a little bit about the uh, site where they're going to build the irradiation plant. It's in a former paperbark wetland area, which is very pretty because I've been out there, and it has a high water table and sandy subsoil. Apparently, um, Stereotech was advised by the Department of Natural Resources that the 100-year um, flood level would be 10 metres below their containment pool. But um, the creek itself, which is very close to the back uh, edge of the property, is, very, um, is only about 11 feet below the ground surface level, so I don't know where they got their facts from, but I think that, that if, should there be an accident, there's going to be a contamination of water happening. Mm -hmm. It's a creek catchment area that feeds into Moreton Bay, which is a major commercial fishing and recreational ground for southeast Queensland. It has a lot of endangered species in it. It'll have a plant capacity of 3.5 million curies of gamma radioactivity, and less than one microcurie of radioactivity is enough to cause cancer. It'll be pretty close proximity to schools and residential homes, and there's been a lot of uh, community opposition to it. In 2014, the Makati people in Central Australia succeeded in vetoing a nuke dump on their land. In 2015, the government then proposed five new sites. The struggle to keep nuclear waste out and uranium in the ground continues. Would you take a billion dollars? If, as part of the deal, the Earth were made uninhabitable a year after your death, well, of course not. You care about your friends, above all your children and your grandchildren. But what if the deal called for the planet to be poisoned a thousand years later? We feel strong obligations to generations in the near future. Should we not feel the same way about our children's great-grandchildren and generations beyond them? Climate change is arguably the biggest challenge to face people on planet Earth. Not only does global climate change affect all of us, it requires the cooperation of the whole planet to solve. Therein lies our problem for today. People of the Pacific Islands will be disproportionately affected by sea level rise and extreme weather. In 2004, Eco Radio's Kim Stewart, myself, went on a national tour with representatives of grassroots organisers from Samoa, Tuvalu and Nigeria, three countries who are already suffering from our fossil fuel dependency. Tuvalu had um, climate change there. Um, we observed it. it's really coming uh, to the dangerous uh, situation. I think uh, Duvali will be sink. So it is the concern of our people. Uh, so I should mention some uh, observations that I, I, we experienced in Tuvalu now. It's uh, the sea level rise. Mm. You know, there is a, a coming up of uh, two millimeters every year of sea level rise. And then flooding. Flooding, something that is coming uh, almost every uh, uh, what high tide, you know. Mm. It's a change also, not like before. Uh, and the, the other thing is erosion. Yeah? Mm. The erosion is coming up too, to a very dangerous uh, thing. And the high tide, or high waves, eh? high waves we experienced in 2003. Uh, some uh, coastal areas has hit by uh, what two big wave, uh, what, two big waves or high waves, which is uh, 
affected uh, houses uh, who, who were uh, what uh, situated closely to the coastal uh, coastal uh, areas, and also damaged the the food crops. Those are our worries, and droughts. Drought is coming uh, frequently here every year. That was Suila Taloa, representative of an environmental NGO in Tuvalu. You feel that 7 million people live in the Pacific do not matter on the issue of climate change. I think we also need to reassess our thinking. And I say that too from the Pacific perspective because Australia has been, for us, a leader for generations. A leader in many things. And a leader for us is a leader that is responsible and one that would take genuine care of people that they are leading. And I must say that lately we have quite been quite disappointed. You were just listening to Fiu from Samoa, an island nation that is already being adversely affected by sea level rise and climate changes. Uh, this is Fort Triple Z. I'm here with Sai, part of the Pacific Island uh, March this morning. So tell us what's happening today. Well, today, uh, us Pacific Islander communities, alongside other organizations, have congregated together in order to march for climate justice because it's a really important issue for all of us eventually. So that's why we're here to just kind of show that we are standing in solidarity and showing that we have our own voices and that we are willing to raise it and fight for our own land. I originally, I am from the beautiful country of Samoa, situated in the Pacific. A lot of Pacific Island people here today raising their voice on climate change. Do you have anything you want to talk about? Well, to all the people around the world, what we do globally does affect us locally, and what we do locally does affect us globally. So all the actions that you're taking with all the coal mining and all the um, emissions that are happening around the world and the sea level continues to rise because it does have an effect on our homelands. And if we are not careful and cautious, there will be people here, actually here in this march, present. Within five years, they may have no country. On that note, uh, we got all the Pacific Island leaders, the prime ministers and presidents, heading to Paris for the climate summit. You have any message to say to them, especially being an expatriate uh, Pacific Island that live in Australia? All, I, all I'd say to my leaders or all the leaders out there in the world that whatever you are giving in aid, please think what you are signing up for. Are we selling our homelands to drown or are we selling our souls for the money? And we have to protect the future of our children. My name's Lisa Seenan Jameson. And uh, what's happening today? Today we, the Pacifica community in Brisbane, are uniting to march at the People's Climate March. Um, we're standing up for frontline communities and we're here representing all the different nations of the, of the Pacific. We want um, Pacific Island delegates to be heard. We want their voices to be heard by leaders of the world and actually taken seriously. We know that climate change is a really very, very real threat to our islands, to people's food security, to people's homes and to our culture and we want our leaders to be respected and taken seriously for once. We want governments to reconsider their gas emission targets we want them to consider our future and protect Pacifica. That interview by David Ephraim, a member of the Radio in Colour crew. we have now are captive for the transnational corporations that he was calling the shots telling them what to do these people are not independent at all they can't keep election promises they can't even make promises to the people because they are not responsible to the people they are answerable 
to invisible hands from boardrooms of these traditional national corporations. Part of the reason for us being on this tour, as you rightly suggested, is to talk to the hearts of the people, because these are the ones who have the power to make a difference. That when you go to the gas station, just pay a thought about what kind of company are you patronizing? Are you patronizing a killing, stealing company as you, you fill up your car? Because a lot of, in my country, a lot of blood has flowed and is still flowing from the oil fields directly because of the greed of these companies and because they don't want anyone to say anything about their manner of production and how they devastate the environment. So we, and they are the same companies who are holding the key to other forms of energy, renewable energy. They are the ones who are investing in solar energy and the rest. And they are making, they are purposely making these energies inaccessible. They're making them expensive right now because they want to squeeze out all the money they can get from the oil wells. It's not as though the world is not advanced enough to move to other levels of other uses of energy. just simply rise up. It's time for the people to rise up and to throw out anyone in government who is not doing things that people want. I mean, this is the power that we have. And that's, this is the power I can see in the one-third world, I mean, which most of us don't have in the two-thirds world because the uh, political system is so manipulated. Uh, but where people have access to democracy, they should ensure that people that they elect are people who would listen and give feedback, you know, because otherwise you keep on having these people who have all the power, they're not listening to you, and they, they spend your resources recklessly, and then they keep on, they refuse to enter into treaties, you have outlaws in government, you can, this cannot go on. Listening to Nimo Bassi, former head of Friends of the Earth International, who runs an environmental NGO in Nigeria. You've been listening to episode 18 of Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Brisbane's Community Radio 4ZZZ. We acknowledge the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and our partners in this production team. Radio Ocala is made by a team of young producers from 15 different countries. This episode of Radio in Colour was recorded at the Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland, as well as at Radios 4EB and 4ZZZ. The Multicultural Development Association of Queensland is a proud sponsor of Radio in Colour. This show was produced by Kim Stewart, Carolina Kaliaba and Stephen Regal. Ni Adapayibi is our sound engineer and Blair Martin is our trainer. their souls will gain the war but lose their souls you live on the blood of my people my name is Kim Stewart special thanks to our guest today Sawila Toloa from Tuvalu Nimo Bassi former head of Friends of the Earth International Gavin Unsworth, radio technician with 4EB and 4ZZZ, and many other radio stations around the planet. Voice talent Nathan Laurent, Ula Sheehan, and Alex Stewart. You can listen back to our stories on the 4ZZZ website, 4ZZZFM.org.au. Thank you for listening. Thank you.
blood of my people Everyone knows you've come to steal You come like the thieves in the night The whole world is ready to fight 